Almighty God. Continue to speak to us through your word. We need you every moment of every hour of every day. I thank you for the ones within the sound of my voice. Father, speak to them. May we hear your voice, the voice of truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The woman, the child, and the dragon. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Oswald Chambers was an early 20th century Scottish Baptist evangelist. He was converted under the preaching of Charles Spurgeon. He is best known for the daily devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. Now, he authored a book entitled, Thy Psychology of Redemption, Making All Things New. And I want to read a little snippet to you about what this book's about because that title may send a a yellow flag or red flag up to you when you hear the title of that book. So here's what that book's about. Christian psychology is based on the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, not on the knowledge of ourselves. It is not the study of human nature, analyzed and expounded, but the study of the new life that is born in us through the redemption of our Lord and the only standard of that new life is the Lord himself. Now, as you know, Charles Spurgeon in the book, I want to quote out of that book that he wrote, The Psychology of Redemption, Making All Things New. Now, listen very carefully. Quote, Nothing blinds the mind to the claims of Jesus Christ more effectually than a good, clean living, upright life based on self-realization. For a thing to be satanic does not mean that it is abominable and immoral. The satanically managed man is moral, upright, proud, and individual. He is absolutely self-governed and has no need of God. End of quote. The reason I bring that up is we're introduced to three people in this text. A woman dragon, and a male child. I want to focus on that red dragon for a moment. Because a lot of times we have in pop culture uh, this idea that Satan, the devil, the dragon, if you want to know where I get that from, look down in verse 9 of chapter 12. It tells you exactly who the dragon is. But there's a common belief that something evil has to be somewhat grotesque or dark or gloomy. But that's not necessarily the case. Oswald Chambers said it can be an upright moral man, but so proud of the fact that he has no need of God. Do you 
have a need for God? And do you live your life in that way? Now, many interpreters believe that Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28 and the limitations of the kings of Tyre and Babylon say more than it can be adequately said. In other words, this text in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28 go beyond those earthly monarchs to the power that stands behind them, namely an anointed cherub. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 14 through 17. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were eternally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before the kings that they may see you. Jump ahead of myself, but I'll look at that Ezekiel and back in Isaiah 14 as talking about the fall of Satan from heaven. Can I just say, this seems so self-evident. I question even mentioning this, but it needs to be said. You realize we do have an enemy. The devil, Satan. He's very much alive and well. I would tell you the biggest lie Satan has convinced people of is that he does not exist. He does exist. He's very powerful and very crafty. But Jesus has already won the war with him through the cross but there is a battle that wages every day of every moment. And that is the souls of people are hanging in the balance. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Let's go back to that quote by Oswald Chambers for a moment. An upright, moral man. Hey, I'm not like everybody else. I take care of my wife. I take care of my children. I pay my taxes. I pay my bills. I'm not locked up. I don't do anything illegal. And the world will say, yes, that's a good person. But how about the pride issue? In other words, who gave you that mind to begin with, to have that job? Who gave us the ability to learn and to change? That's God. He created us. Who lets the, the rain fall and the crops grow and we have livestock and food to eat? That all goes back to God. And what I'm trying to drive out, dearly beloved, is that don't think of evil as grotesque and nasty we have to protect ourselves against the enemy who's very crafty. He comes to you dressed beautifully. And he, he will lie to you. He's a father of lies. As I said, we see these characters unfolding in the last half of the tribulation. The dragon, the dragon Satan, I've already mentioned, the false Christ, also known as the Antichrist and the false prophet. 
That's in chapters 12 and 13. And they're in direct opposition to God, almost like a false trinity, if you will. One of the things I hope you grasp today is that Satan, from the very beginning, has been opposed to God, opposed to God's people, and if possible, he will destroy everything about God and everything about God's people. He has one goal in mind, that is to tear you down, rip you down, and destroy you. Destroy your family. Destroy this church. That's his goal. That is his objective. That is his intention. Look at verse 1. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her crown a on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child, in other words, she was pregnant, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain or agony, to give birth. Now NIV renders it a great and wondrous sign. And that's indicating how important this is. There's three major interpretations concerning the identification of who the woman is. Some says she represents Mary, the mother of our Lord. Some say she represents the church. And others say she represents the offspring of Abraham. In other words, the Jewish people. Well, let's look at woman as, as Mary, for example. But Mary, in all of Scripture, is never painted in that way. She is a peasant girl from the town of Nazareth in Galilee. Nowhere does she appear clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, and stars on her head. It's only later in church history do we see this Marian piety and great paintings of Mary in these iconic pictures that we see. It's later in church history. But nowhere in Scripture is she described in that fashion. Mary does not flee into the wilderness where she kept for 1,260 days, as it says in the text. Some point to the flight of Egypt that Joseph and Mary took when Jesus was born because King Herod is going to kill all the babies. And you can see that in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. But the period given in the text cannot be made fit. I mean, hold on, got tongue tied. But the period given in the text cannot be made to fit this description. So, Mary doesn't seem to be a good fit as who the woman's representing. Well, some say she's representing the church. Well, that's not very possible. Because Christ Christ gave birth to the church. The church does not give birth to Christ. The church is Jesus' idea. He shed his blood for the church. And this is a, a, a building that the church meets in. You realize that... This is not the church, this pulpit, those pews, that carpet. That's not the church. Look around you. You are the church. That's Jesus' idea. We need each other. To pray for each other, to cry with each other, to laugh with each other. Have, have you looked around and watched the news and see what's going on? The enemy is trying to destroy us. And he will stop at nothing. He doesn't care if you come in here, sit down and sing a few songs, listen to preaching, walk out again. What he does not want you to do is receive the free gift of life that he offers through his death on the cross and go out and tell others about it. He doesn't want you to do anything about it. Keep it to yourself, but don't go out and say anything 
to anybody else. By the way, I watched a movie called Do You Believe? And there was a question in that movie that kind of struck me. It's a simple question, and I know how you're going to answer the question, but it, it kind of shook me a little bit. The question is this, do you believe in the cross of Christ? Of course I do. So what are you going to do about it? How willing are you, for, how willing are you, for, how willing are you willing to go? Now the third interpretation of this woman in verse 1 is she's representing the offspring of Abraham, the Jewish people. That would make sense because John's readers were Jewish. And the description of a woman would come to their mind in Genesis chapter 37, a dream that Joseph had. He had the first one where his sheaves stood tall and his brother's sheaves bowed to him. That didn't make his brothers very happy. But then he had a second dream, Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And, of course, the crown of 12 stars would be the 12 tribes of Israel. And also remembering the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, we see that as a messianic promise. Where I'm driving home is that apparently... Mary represents the Jewish people, and if you haven't figured it out by now, the child represents the Messiah. Messiah will be the offspring of Abraham, his descendants. It was through Israel, not the church, Jesus came into the world. Jesus was a first century Jewish person. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't change who he is. Notice I didn't say who he was. He's alive right now. You realize that, right? He's sitting on the right hand of the Father. Interceding for you and I. So many scholars believe that the woman is representative of the Jewish nation. Now look back in verse 2. She cried out being in labor and in pain and agony to give birth. That's speaking to how Israel was agonizing and suffering for many centuries. Longing for the promise to Messiah to come. They had tons of rabbi teachings about how the Messiah would come and what he would do. But see, Jesus did exactly what they thought he was going to do. He was the Messiah, but in a whole different way they thought possible. They thought he would establish his kingdom here on earth. And Israel go back to its heyday like under King David, but that did not happen. So the woman there represents the Jewish nation. They give birth to the Messiah. We'll come back to that in verse 4. I mean, excuse me, verse 5. In verse 3, it says, There's another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, and on his head were seven diadems. He is warlike, he's fiery red in color, and those diadems, those kingly crowns, identifies them with the final form of imperial power, control and rule, and and John sees this with the rising of the beast of the sea in chapter 13. Look back in verse 4, his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, threw or hurled them or flung them to earth. It's a reference to the pre-cosmic fall of Satan from heaven. The rebellion was led by Satan, 
but he was followed by other angels. And in this text, the stars are the angels. Such a good number of them followed him. And in Jude chap, excuse me, Jude 6, it tells us angels who do not keep their own domain, but abandon their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And you can see the fall, as I mentioned earlier, in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. In that text are lamenting some rule of these two earthly kings, but back those texts talk about who was behind all that, and that was the anointed cherub. Satan, the devil. And what is he doing in this particular instance that we're reading about? He's, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. See, his purpose is not hidden, is not concealed, is, is not unknown. He wants to frustrate the redemptive work of God, the redemptive purposes of God, and if possible, destroy the work of God. And as I said, verse 9 clearly identifies who the dragon is. If you look down at verse 9, it says, The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Look at verse 5. This woman gives birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron or iron scepter. Look what it says. Apparently after he's born, look at the rest of verse 5, and her child was caught or snatched up to God and to his throne. Now that word translated caught, some translations may use the word snatched, is the same word that we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So this is referring to the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus. Some people say, well, how come it says nothing about his birth, his sinless life, his resurrection? It's all included. What's happening here, we're getting two bookends of his, of his first coming. When he was born and his ascension back into heaven. So he's snatched up. That makes the dragon mad. And look what happens to the woman after she gives birth. He's snatched up or caught up to God, the child. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, verse 6, where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nursed, taken care of for 1,260 days. So he can't do nothing about the Messiah, the dragon can't, because that, that child is gone. So he now turns his anger to the woman. And that's why she flees. The period described here in Scripture is for, as 42 months Chapter 11, verse 2, chapter 13, verse 5, or as time, times, and a half a time, chapter 12, verse 14, or three and a half years in Daniel 9, 27. It's a consistent reference to the final three and a half years of the 70-week prophecy that we find back in Daniel chapter 9. In that prophecy, we find that the Antichrist enters into a covenant with the nation of Israel. At the outset of the tribulation period. However, the covenant is broken halfway through. The dragon is unable to do anything about the Messiah, so he turns his rage and his anger onto the woman. Therefore, she goes into the wilderness, miraculously saved by God for 1,260 days. Without this long-standing antagonistic or resentment of Satan, she would be annihilated. Now, remember who she represents, the nation of Israel. So God intervenes and protects a remnant of the Jewish people. 
And this is on top, apart from the 144,000 who were sealed and protected, we read about earlier in the book of Revelation. Now, we're not told where God provides, protects them, but he's protecting them. This is setting the stage for the judgment and wrath of God to be poured out. And you can see from the beginning that our enemy, Satan, the devil, has been going at God for quite some time. You and I are in a spiritual battle, not a war. The war has been won across the Calvary. But we're in this battle every day. I wonder if God was to take off our physical eyes and give us spiritual eyes for just two hours one day, what would we see? It would scare us to death. Every moment of every day someone dies, physically dies, and ushers into eternity. Do you remember the, the quote of Oswald Chambers, the, the last part of it, that the satanically managed man is a moral man, an upright man, a proud man, an individual he is absolutely self-governed and has no need of God. Right from the beginning, the devil's been opposing God, and God has protected him who belongs to him. Have we forgotten who our enemy really is? With all the church splits, Rumors and backsliding. Have we forgot? How, what screams at me this week as I was preparing, how arrogant we can be as human beings. Are we so conceited and proud that we think that we don't actually need God at all? We believe that we're so smart and intelligent and enlightened we're 21st century Americans. We know so much more now than what the ancients did. They didn't know what to do about the weather, so they made up these stories about the gods. Well, let me tell you something about the weather. Have you noticed, yeah, we can predict the weather, well, somewhat so. But when the storm comes, we don't have the technology or the ability to do anything about that storm. What do we do when the tornado comes in? We all run like little kids to find shelter because there's nothing we can do. And we consider ourselves so enlightened that the Bible now is described as archaic. But let me remind you of something. At as smart as we are, as intelligent as we think we are, we still struggle with lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, which is laziness, wrath, envy and pride by the way those are the seven deadly sins and yet today we still wrestle with them and yet we have one thing about the people we've got in the bible we we know who the messiah is we know about the cross event abraham was faithful yet he did not see any of that 
As I think about this dragon, I think about us as humans and being arrogant. Do we actually believe we can never be good enough to reach God? Oh, we may not say that, but do we act like that? Psalm chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And that's quoted in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Well, Tim, I'm a believer. Yes, praise God you are. But who gave you that knowledge in the first place? Even your salvation, your faith is a gift from God. He's the one who opens your heart. He's the one who opens your mind so you can hear the truth and respond to that truth. There's a lot of talk about religion today, too. But let me tell you something. Christianity is not a religion. That word religion comes from the Latin word, I'm probably going to butcher this, religio. It has a meaning of having obligations to, to the gods. In other words, religion is our efforts, what we do to please God and be acceptable to God or gods, depending on which religion you're talking about. But see, Christianity is not a religion. Because Christianity does not involve, involve our attempt to reach God. It's all about God reaching down to us through his son, Jesus Christ. You don't do good works to earn your salvation. You do good works because of your salvation. And we're fighting an old enemy. And he knows everything. As they would say, he knows how to push your buttons. He knows how to discourage you, to trip you up, to second-guess yourself, to doubt, to wonder if you can do any good. How do I know that? Because that happens to me every week. But yet the voice of truth reminds me who's called me, who will sustain me, and who will never leave me. And that is God himself. As we have seen in this text, and I've said repeatedly that Satan has been opposing God and opposing his work since the beginning, we see that in our text he wanted to destroy. The devil, the devil wanted to destroy. He tempted Jesus. He tried everything he could. He thought he had won when Jesus died, but then Jesus rose on the third day. Uh-oh. Didn't see that one coming, did you? And if Jesus, who's my master and my savior and my Lord, rose again, guess what's going to happen? The same thing to me. I know one day I will see my mama again. I will see so many ones that I stood at the cemetery with their families, reminding them through our tears that they will see their loved one again. It's not over. Death is just simply the passing over. Let me remind you that all of you are going to live for eternity just depends on where you're going to spend eternity at. Heaven, with God, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and all the saints going on before, or you will spend it in the pit of darkness, agony, gnashing of teeth. See, Satan wants you to have religion to keep you content until it's too late. 
He doesn't care if you go to a good Bible-believing church. He doesn't care if you sing in the choir, teach Sunday school. What he does not want you to do is receive the free gift of salvation and act upon it. There are many religions, but only one salvation. I remind you, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you're a disciple of Christ, you're a born-again believer this morning, what are you, what are you going to do? <laughs> we see the stage being set in this text. The, the Jewish people, the, the Messiah has come through the Jewish people. He's fulfilled his work. He's purchased redemption, and now he's at the right hand of the Father. It's only a short amount of time until he's coming back again. It's all set. God is arranging everything on the great stand stage. And in Revelation, he's pulling the curtain back so we can see what's about to happen. We have been warned. (laughs) What are you going to do about it? What am I going to do with it? That's a daunting question, isn't it? Let me just remind you very briefly. Time is slipping away. There is a cost. You don't purchase your salvation. I'm not talking about But when you really serve Christ and follow him, there is a price to be paid. In fact, he told us to count the cost. You truly follow Christ? Not everyone's going to like you. People may not like you. They may even hate you. They'll call you and you'll be persecuted. Jesus was persecuted by his own people. That's like saying we'll be persecuted by people in the church. The cross is bloody. It's hard. And the work is very demanding. But it's all worth it in the end. Dear beloved, I'm not a prophet. But in the deep down of my soul, as I continue in this study, the end is coming quicker than we know. And I want to see everybody. Everybody look up here. I want to see all of you in heaven one day. Not because I was a great preacher or a good guy, but simply because... You knew Jesus, and he knows you. I end with this, that that song I shared with you earlier in the service. When we stand before God, we have in his presence, we're in his presence now, the Holy Spirit is here. What a response do I have? What move can I make simply just to reach out my hands and cry out, Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. If you don't know him, if you don't know Christ, come now when the music begins to play. And I'll introduce you to him. He'll change your life and never be the same. If you've done that, but you're longing for something deeper. You you just wait on your shoulders. You don't know what it is. You've told God, yes, I'll give you my life to you, but you know he's calling you something deeper. Would you come and just pour out your heart to him?
Maybe you need to intercede some ministry you have here in our church. Excuse me, his church. Maybe you need to pray for salvation of loved ones and friends. See, prayer is not the last thing we come to, dearly beloved. Prayer should be the first thing that we do. If there's a need in your life, I don't care what it is. I don't care what you're going to do for work or where the money going to come from. Get down on your knees and think the very one who can answer that prayer is, and that's God Almighty. Your answer is not coming from the government. How arrogant do we think we are when we think we can vote someone in office that's going to make everything the way it should be? That's human arrogance. History will show that has never worked. Take time now in the coming days to seek his face. He tells us if you seek after him with all your heart, he'll make himself known to you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that Father, you don't need us. You're God. You can do anything. You speak it and it happens, but yet with your great love that you have lavished upon us that we can be called your children. That we can come into your presence and speak to you. A holy, perfect God made the way possible the sacrifice of your son. I pray that our lives will not just be marked on a Sunday morning giving you thanks, but we'll live our days each and every hour of our lives in gratitude to you. Father, we would seek you and we would pray for each other. Father, we cannot defeat Satan on our own. We need you. There is no other way. Forgive us of our pride and our arrogance. Have mercy upon us. Forgive us. Grant us courage and wisdom and discernment as we seek to follow you. Father, we pray if there's anyone here within the sound of my voice that does not know your Son as both Savior and Lord of their lives, that this would be the hour that would happen. May we hold nothing back from you because you held nothing back from us. You get all the glory. May your will be done. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.